0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 4, continuing on where we left off after last Sunday evening service where we looked at 1 Samuel 3. This is now 1 Samuel chapter 4. Hear now the reading of God's holy and errant word. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, and they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tents. There was a very great slaughter. And there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching For his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does this sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. He said, What happened, my son? So the, man, the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened, when he made mention of the ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. And he had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, we come today to a difficult text, a text of much sorrow, of much difficulty for your people. I pray that you would illuminate our hearts by your Holy Spirit to receive it, that we would understand it, that we would apply it, and that it would convict where needed, but also even in these darkest of times in the history of your people, that we would have hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've probably heard somewhere the popular expression of being at rock bottom. It's where someone is in the lowest of the low. Things have gone wrong. There's been mistakes. There's been perhaps some long-standing pattern of sin that has resulted in a person being in the worst state they've ever been in. It's called rock bottom because it's a realization that things cannot possibly get any worse. There is nowhere to go from here but up. It's something you see, for instance, in dealing with addictions. Uh, Addicts usually won't stop unless things get so bad and so out of control that it finally jars them into change. Well, in the history of God's people, we see cycles of faithfulness. God's people love him and serve him faithfully for a time, but then over time, complacency comes in. People aren't quite as devoted as they once were. Maybe things start to become routine and rote and repetitive, And so the truth of God starts to be taken for granted. Idols and false worship can come in. And then a crisis comes. The people of God have their rock-bottom experience. And then God intervenes, and then for a time there is revival and faithfulness again until things once again start to decline. This time of the Judges, as was documented in the book of Judges and continues into these first chapters of 1 Samuel, is, a, is such a cycle of rebellion and repentance and reformation. Well here, early in 1 Samuel, we are in what could be called the last Judges cycle, where Israel will decline and deteriorate until a crisis perpetuates the raising up of a judge that will lead them out of it. Chapter 4 of 1 Samuel is the rock bottom of this cycle. God has patiently endured with his rebellious people for quite some time, but now judgment has come. Now we've seen this judgment coming. It was first prophesied by the unnamed prophet in chapter 2. It was reiterated in Samuel's calling and his first vision in chapter 3 that we looked at last week. These warnings have come, but they've been unheard. And so in 1 Samuel 4, judgment comes. There's really no way to soften or to sugarcoat it. 1 Samuel 4 is a passage of terror and sadness and God's righteous anger against an apostate priesthood and a rebellious people. So we'll look at this judgment in three points here today. First, we see a scheme in verses 1 through 5. Second, we see a slaughter, in verses 6 through 11. And then third, we see sorrow, in verses 12 through 22. So again, a scheme, a slaughter, and then sorrow. First, we see the scheme, which appears in verses 1 through 5. Now, thus far in these opening chapters of 1 Samuel, we've been dealing mostly with localized events. We've been dealing with the family of Samuel, as well as the situation at the tabernacle in Shiloh, and particularly Eli's family and their priesthood. Now, while this is related to broader events, here in the book we see a definite shift of focus from these localized situations of these families to the broader situation of national Israel. We see that 1 Samuel is set in a time of geopolitical conflict. We're introduced here for the first time in the book of 1 Samuel to the conflict with the Philistines. This conflict was an old conflict. It did not start here. After the conquest of the promised land in Joshua, Joshua 13 listed lands, that were not yet conquered. They were lands that were supposed to be conquered, but the Israelites were not up to the task. And one of those that was not conquered was the Philistines. And as with all of the unconquered peoples, they will cause lots of problems for Israel. And eventually things come to warfare between Israel and the Philistines. We start to see that war ramp up in the book of Judges. In Judges 3, the Philistines were listed as one of the nations sent to test Israel. And in that chapter, the Judge Shamgar, he's not one of the best-known judges, but he is one of the judges, he killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, a cattle prod, basically. Better known would be Samson, the later judge, whose life and death are spent in conflict with the Philistines. That's in Judges 13 through 16. The Philistines, they were the people of the coastal lands to the southwest of Israel. They probably had come from the sea. They had probably descended from the area of Greece. But here for the first time in this book, in 1 Samuel, we see a new wave of warfare break out between Israel and the Philistines. While we know these things about the Philistines, we don't get a lot of details as to this first battle. We don't know who started it and why. We do notice one such indication when the Philistines are fearful that the Ark has come in. They mention uh, that they are going to be enslaved as Israel was to them. So it seemed like in some way the Philistines had been oppressing Israel. They had enslaved at least part of Israel. Um, But now this comes to war. We do know that this first battle does not go well for Israel. In the first campaign Israel was defeated and 4,000 soldiers were lost. You could think of the whole ta- the whole population of the town of Winter for example. That's about 3,000 people. So more people even than that were killed in this first battle. In verse 3, we see that Israel comes to a moment of self-reflection. Why did this happen? We're God's people. Why have we been defeated this day? Or as other translations, perhaps more revealingly put it, why has the Lord defeated us? Now, from our post as outside observers, it is probably pretty obvious in light of what we've looked at in the previous chapters. These people have forgotten the Lord. They have rebelled and sinned against him. And so they've been given into the hands of their enemies. We have in previous messages seen the depth of this wickedness among the people. It's seen most clearly in the corruption of God's worship at the tabernacle in Shiloh. These evil, worthless priests, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, have been stealing from the portions of the sacrifice reserved for God and stealing from the people, and they've been committing gross acts of sexual immorality at the tabernacle in the course of their priestly service. And corruption and rot and decay like that in worship probably indicates a similar rot among the people. Because corruption in worship usually reflects corruption in the world around. We see in our day a lot of corruption, compromise, sin, and false worship among the church in our day. That doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It happens when the church starts parroting the world around it, following after the spirit of the age. And so as they come to reflect on their crisis, on this defeat in battle, the elders of Israel get one thing right and one thing wrong. They correctly acknowledge that this defeat came from the Lord. God carried out judgment on his people because they had forsaken him and rebelled against him. They were right to recognize that God had turned away his help and let them fall before the Philistines. So in light of this, the question is, what should Israel do? Now they should have known the answer. They got the answer before they ever entered the land. It was recorded in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 3. Says, Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you. And gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So when God disciplines his people in this way, the right response is repentance. To turn back to the Lord with all their hearts and with all their soul. When calamity and war and famine and exile come, they should return to God and put their trust in him once again. Is that what they do? No. This is the one thing they get wrong. Look at what they do at the end of verse 3. They say, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Now there is some dispute, and the language is fairly ambiguous as to whether the text should say, It may come, referring to the ark, or He may come, referring to God. The A definite article in the Hebrew, it's the same for masculine and neuter singular words. Now, if they're saying he may come, then it would show at least some recognition of the need to turn back to God, the need for God's presence among them. However, if the subject is it, and I think this is more correct, then basically they're trying to do some kind of magic trick with God's ark bringing it as though the ark itself is the source of power. And I think because of the corruption we've seen in the chapters before this and how God responds to this act in what follows, I think they meant it. I think that they thought bringing the ark would give them some kind of special power, the object itself and not the God that it represents. By making this kind of superstitious power play with God's Ark, they confirmed themselves in their blindness and willful ignorance. This was a perversion. It was a misunderstanding of what God had done for them in the past. Previously in battles recorded, for instance, in Numbers and Joshua, the Ark would go out before the people into battle. For instance, into the famous battle of Jericho in Joshua 6. But it wasn't the Ark that was the source of that power. The Israelites of old triumphed not because the ark was with them, but because the Lord was with them. The ark was just a symbol. The Lord gave them the victory. Well, here in 1 Samuel 4, God is not with them because they are not with him. Like I said, they're basically trying to do a magic trick. They're trying to manipulate God and control God and bring him to their aid when they have up to this point lived as though he is not their God and they are not his people. So in verse 4, the people at the battle sent to Shiloh to have the ark brought there. And who should come with it but the two worthless men themselves, Hophni and Phinehas. In verse 5, upon the arrival of the ark at the camp, all of the Israelites there gave a shout. This, too, brings to mind the former glories of Joshua and Jericho after they marched around with the trumpets, they let out a great shout, and the walls came down. But this is no Jericho. The heart of Israel at this time is completely in the wrong. They are treating the ark like an idol, a good luck charm, some superstitious spell, that now that they have it, they're going to win. But we see how that goes in our second point, which is the slaughter described in verses 6 through 11. The presence of the ark is no substitute for the presence of the God that it signifies. In fact, this superstitious show backfires in a devastating way for the people of Israel. In verse 6, we see that the Philistines hear this great shout when the ark shows up. The Philistines investigate and they learn that it is because the ark is there that this has happened. Now their response is quite ironic. The Philistines, upon hearing about the ark's arrival, demonstrate something, albeit flawed and incomplete and corrupted, of the fear of the Lord. In verses 7 and 8, they say, God has come into the camp. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Now they don't have all their facts straight. It was not just a god or some gods who came into the camp or who had struck the Egyptians. The god they were thinking about was the one true and living god, the god of Israel but they do at least recognize something from history that Israel at this point seems to have forgotten. It was their God who struck the Egyptians. It was their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. While Israel had forgotten their God, the Philistines at least remember him a little bit and show some fear. They know that God has given his people great victories in the past. The problem is that God is not with Israel this time. He would not go with them into the battle. They were relying on their own strength, and they would learn the folly of that soon enough. But the Philistines, hearing this shout, knowing that the ark is there, they believe that they're in serious trouble. So in verse 9, they rally. They are told... To take courage and be men, lest they be captured and enslaved and overthrown. The Philistines believe that Israel's God is there, and thus they need to fight harder than they've ever fought before, or they will be utterly destroyed. So in a way, Israel's superstitious plan to bring the ark in has backfired. Not only is God not really with them, but now they are going up against an extra motivated Philistine army. And so the stage is set for the second campaign of the battle. Now remember, the first battle resulted in the loss of 4,000 Israelite soldiers. But here the slaughter is increased exponentially. We read in verse 10 that 30,000 of their troops fell. And not only that, but the ark that was to symbolize God's presence among the people, it was taken from them. Truly, The ark departing was just causing the situation on the ground to reflect the reality. Why would the sign of God's presence remain with Israel when they had forsaken him and he was not with them? And Hophni and Phinehas, these worthless and corrupt priests who did not know God, who stole from God, stole from and abused God's people, they reap what they have sown. They received God's promised judgment for their wickedness. It's not just that they died in that battle, but they experienced the pure terror of death apart from the Lord. We were told in the prophecies concerning them that no atonement for their sins would exist. Hophni and Phineas entered into eternal condemnation that day. Those who would claim to be God's people but live like he is absent, may find in the critical moment, the moment of truth, that God is in fact absent from them. There's been some fascinating research done in recent years about what actually is the most popular religion in America, not by what people call it, because the majority of Americans would still call themselves Christians, but what do they actually believe? Well, what has emerged What has been discovered is that the most common religion in America is not Christianity, but something called moralistic therapeutic deism. And it has the following attributes. This is essentially what this belief system is that they compiled from the surveys they did. It includes belief in a God who remains distant from people's lives. So there is a God, but he's not really here. He's not really involved. Next, people are supposed to be good to each other, so that's where the moral part comes from. And then the universal purpose of life is being happy and feeling good about oneself. Next, there are no absolute moral truths. And then next, God allows good people into heaven. And then last, God places very limited demands on his people. So again, moralistic because you're supposed to be good, therapeutic because God helps you when you need him, but otherwise isn't really involved. Deism because there is a God, but he's a God who's kept at arm's length all throughout. Do you know people that believe like this? I do. Do you believe like this? Or do you feel the pressure of living in a world like this? A recent survey found that three out of four people who actually believe this moralistic, therapeutic deism claim to be Christians. But this is not Christianity. Christianity is not a religion of a distant God who only shows up when we call on Him in times of desperate need. Christianity is not a religion of relativism where God just lets people be what they are and do what they do And they're fine as long as the good on the scale outweighs the bad at the end. That's anti-Christian. That's a rejection of God. Rejection of the gospel, rejection of his word, and rejection of his lordship. And that's the sort of state we've seen Israel in, in and leading up to 1 Samuel 4. Friends, God is not some fashion accessory that We use or we look at or we acknowledge only when we need him. No, God made us. He owns us. Christ spilled his blood to redeem us and to purchase us from our sin and misery. An occasional casual deference to him is not good enough. If we're okay with a life where God is not there and not involved most of the time, God probably isn't there. When Israel forgot about their God until a time of need, a time of a problem they could not solve, they learned the hard way that God was not there for them. And so the fallout comes, as we see in our third and final point, the sorrow of verses 12 through 22. A messenger comes to Shiloh and comes to Eli. Eli. Now we read here that Eli, old, frail, and blind, is sitting and trembling. He's he's worried. He's worried about the ark. He's worried about his sons. It's quite a sad picture. Eli knows full well these prophecies that have come in chapters 2 and 3 against his house, against his sons, particularly that one of chapter 2 in verses 33 and 34 that said, all the descendants of your house, shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phineas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Eli probably had a pretty good idea that that day had come. And this messenger comes in such a way that it's clear that he's a bearer of bad news. His clothes are torn, there's dirt on his head. These are the signs of mourning that they would use in that day. Now, while the blind Eli can't see this, others in the city can, and when they hear the news, there's a crying out, there's a wailing in the streets that everyone can hear. What well, it was just a short while ago, a presumptive shout of victory, thinking that bringing the ark would bring them a triumph over the Philistines. Now that has been replaced with weeping, with wailing, with sadness. When Eli hears this outcry, he asks, What is this uproar? Why is this going on? Again, he probably already had an idea. He knew what was going to happen, and he knew that he was powerless to stop it. Look at this picture of Eli we get here. He's 98 years old, he's blind, and as we see later, he's heavy. He was at this point in his life a living symbol of futility. Though he might have believed in the Lord, no one around him did, Even his own sons didn't and wouldn't. His time as judge and high priest had been characterized by wickedness and corruption, and now it has met a violent end. So Eli asks and receives the expected news. The Israelites have been defeated, Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the ark has been captured by the Philistines. Now on this third piece of bad news, Eli meets his own end. Perhaps he's so shaken by the grief from what has happened, he falls over backwards and breaks his neck, and that is how he dies. And so was the sad end of Eli. A man whose life was characterized by weakness and compromise, he meets a weak and humiliating end. At the end of verse 18, we see an important postscript about Eli. We see that he had judged Israel 40 years He had been one of those priest-ruler hybrids characteristic of the time of judges. But he's not going to be remembered like some of the other judges who were known for their valiant deeds and bravery and bringing revival, turning the people back to the Lord. No, the end of Eli's judgeship is basically rock bottom. It is the worst of the worst for the people of Israel. Worship was polluted and corrupted to the point where even the ark of God's covenant is found in the hands of the Philistines. The nation is besieged and embroiled in a losing war. Eli's life of weakness and cowardice and corruption has left a sorrowful legacy in his house and among his people. But as if Eli is not enough to show us the great sorrow and devastation of this episode, we get another postscript in verses 19 through 22. We learn that Phineas had a wife who was with child. Now this makes his previously described sexual immorality all the more egregious. He wasn't just committing these gross acts with the women at the tabernacle, but he was doing so with a pregnant wife at home. This awful news of the deaths of her husband, brother-in-law, and father-in-law causes her to go into labor. We read in verse 20 that this birth would bring about her death as well. Remember back to chapter 1 of 1 Samuel to the first birth in in this book, the birth of Samuel. It was a birth of hope, a birth that meant the reversal of fortune for a godly but downcast woman who would respond with grateful praise and be blessed with many more children. And this son would be recognized as Israel's prophet. But here we've come full circle to a very different sort of birth. Here a woman who is not even named, living among the priests, who should have known the hope of the Lord more than anyone, dies silent, destitute, hopeless, while giving birth to a son who, based on the curses we've seen against Eli's house, has no hope of his own. And he is named Ichabod, in verse 21. The glory has departed from Israel. Now it's not as though the glory had just now that day departed with the capture of the ark. It had clearly been gone for a while. It disappeared quietly long ago as Hophni and Phineas blasphemed God and profaned his worship and their weak and cowardly father let them continue with little more than a complaint. But now the reality of God's turning away can be hidden no longer. There is no more ark for corrupt priests to play pretend with anymore. And the priests themselves are dead. If anyone held any delusions that the glory of God remained with his people, they were shattered this day. Now, this is not to say that God himself is gone or powerless. God is still working. We'll see in the next chapter how God works his mighty works even among the Philistines. But for those who should have been the priests of God's people, the chosen of the chosen, there was no glory. There was only this sorrow and death. And destruction. So we come to the end of this text. It's account of a scheme, a slaughter, and a great sorrow. This is the rock-bottom point for Israel, and it calls us to solemn reflection. Are we God's people living before his face, loving him, worshiping him, serving him as we ought, or are we playing pretend? Is God's glory seen and heard and known among us? We have all the things we should have externally that it would require. We have his word. We hear it Lord's day after Lord's day. We gather here to worship. But is God with us? Is he present in our lives? Or are we these moralistic, therapeutic deists where we keep God at arm's length until we think we need him? And when we realize we need him, will we be surprised, like Israel, to find that because of our neglect and rebellion, he is, in fact, not there? We can fool ourselves. We can fool others for a time. But there comes a day of judgment for all people, where no one will be able to fool anyone any longer. God will be there for those who are his people, He will declare them innocent. He will raise them up to glory to live where he lives and dwell where he dwells. Those who are united to Christ who have received his blood by salvation will be delivered. They will be commended, well done, good and faithful servant. But those who have played pretend will hear, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. This is a heavy truth. It is a hard truth that we are confronted with in God's word. But it doesn't have to remain that way. The message of the gospel is simple. Christ died to save sinners. He offers forgiveness of sins and salvation and life to those who will place their trust in him. And that offer is extended to all here once again this day. Do not hesitate because like Hophni and Phineas learned that offer does not go on forever. There comes a day of death, a day of reckoning, a day where one may seek repentance but not find it. Do not delay, today is the day of salvation. For those who do belong to Christ today, how do we walk in his presence? Do we worship him in spirit and in truth? Do we love him and serve him as we ought? Or do we keep him at arm's length? Do we just give him a spot on the shelf with all the other things that we're devoted to? Christ is not only our Savior, he is also our Lord. And he will not share his devotion with another. So if we are neglecting him today, let us repent of that and turn back to him. Look to him fully and love him and believe in this gospel and serve God and love neighbor as we ought, living before the face of God. Let us pray. Father, we confess that this is a difficult word that we have heard from you. It confronts us in our sin, in our complacency, pray that you would have mercy on us, that you would spur us on to uh, the devotion to you that you desire. I pray that we would know and believe and trust in your son, Jesus Christ, and his gospel, which is the only way that we have to salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamelopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.